I wanted to start off today um, because we're going to be looking uh, at a few uh, at a few judgments against surrounding nations. And uh, I was, <clears throat> as I was reading in this uh, this big uh, commentary on Ezekiel, there's some words that uh, I, I think are quite relevant in relation to the judgment on the nations, surrounding nations of Israel, as well as uh, perhaps in our own time as well. And I'd just like to read a few words and uh, feel free to, to comment. If Ezekiel or other prophets were writing today, and we know they're not, right, because the, uh, the canon is closed, but if Ezekiel or other prophets were writing today, we can only speculate as to the examples God might choose to denounce through such oracles. We've seen already in our, in our study thus far of Ezekiel, God's judgment on Israel. God's indictment of his own people because of what they have done, right? We dare not exclude, or on principle, we dare exclude no nation or people, not even our own. Certainly such oracles would apply to nations that have an official religion other than Christianity and use their civil power to persecute believers in Jesus. This would include Islamic states, whose God is opposed to the biblical God, and who by law condemn Christians to capital punishment. You're aware of that, right? In other countries, oh, yes. to convert to Christianity is the death penalty. Such oracles would apply, or actually I should go on a little bit further, Islam does not even recognize the distinction between the political and religious realms. Okay, so there's no distinction, there's no contrast between church and state or distinction in Islamic countries. It's one and the same. And you could almost guess, very likely, which one usurps the other if there's ever a contradiction. Not the laws of the state, but the laws of the religion. That's why Sharia law, you've probably heard of that, why it's so dangerous for a country to hold... Um, Sharia law within their own country because now you have two, two laws that contrast with each other. How do you defend both at the same time? You can't. Not according to Sharia law, you can't. Such oracles would also apply to nations whose official religion is a form of atheism, such as communism, and that oppose the one true faith. In North Korea, I see your hand. In North Korea, there's still a great amount of persecution happening on Christians. Even just, uh, apparently, I, I just read something, just having a Bible in North Korea could get you killed publicly for people to see. Yeah. How do you spell Sharia law? Sharia? Um, I think it's, I want to say S-H-A-R-I-A. Is it different? No, that's it. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm going by how it sounds, which is kind of a dangerous thing in English, right? Because it doesn't always work that way. All right. So, you know, after commenting, uh, this commentator, after speaking about other nations like Islam, 
uh, you know, communistic nations and, and the like. He then continues, we must concede that these oracles, judgments, can also pertain to nations where the church is accepted. And a Christian denomination may even be sanctioned as the state religion, i.e. in some European countries, but the church is subject to political control or even has virtually become an institutionalized culture religion so that the proclamation of the gospel is suppressed or silenced for the sake of other agendas. I'm aware of this, at least in Germany, and I, I would assume in other countries too, but in Germany you can be considered a member of the church if you're simply baptized into the church and you don't even have to go anymore. And you're still considered a member of the Lutheran church. Uh, in Sweden and in various other places where, where it is a state-run church, they have beautiful, and you can correct me on this or, or uh, elaborate, but some of the churches are very, very well kept, yeah. very ornate. Because part of your taxes goes to the church. Right. Even though, in, in at least a few, if not more, they're pretty much empty on Sundays, right? Or sold to Muslims. Um, so there, there's, uh, is it Ken Ham that uh, speaks of that a little bit? Ken Ham, he's the director of the Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum. He's instrumental in that. Uh, but he is, he's commented, as well as others have too, um, you know, concerning the purchase of churches by Muslims and then converted to um, places of worship for Muslims. So... Um, a lot of your, your European churches, your big Gothic type churches, are more museums now than anything else. Yeah, which says a lot right there too. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> they make more money on the on the Monday through Friday group, yeah. Saturday group than they do on. Mhm. Yeah. Because we were at St. We went to St. Paul's there in London when we took our trip, and the first thing I noticed was that when we walked in, there were no pews. Okay. There were no pews. Yeah, we had to sit on folding chairs. Yeah, they, I mean, they had, there was, in the, in the center part of the church, there was, uh, I would say, probably 50 chairs at the most, and I'm expecting that. Uh, and there was no extras, you know, around, so I would figure that was probably a maximum number that would probably attend on a Sunday morning would be about 50 to 75 in, the, in that big church. Yeah. <clears throat> Indicating when it was built was about 1432. 
And I looked at my kids and I said, you know, this church was built before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it's like, you should have, I wish I had taken a picture because it was priceless to see them stand there and think there's something older than anything in the United States even come close to. It was, you know, they, they don't think about, oftentimes Americans don't think about things being older than we are. You probably are right on that. <laughs> and and a by the way thing, churches in earlier centuries did not have pews. No, right. you stood. Yeah. That's where you get the the vision of people standing to hear. Yeah. They really want to hear. If they don't really want to hear, they're not going to stand there. Yeah. But it, it was uh, you know, some of that. I I don't know how much of this was acoustic. But you know, like some of the some of the pulpits of the older churches, you know, are raised, and the churches, the the Gothic structure, the architecture, that really helps with sound. They didn't need microphones. Um, so I, I guess uh, you know that the idea is not only does does the sound project out, but it comes down to, you know, a little bit. So um, you know, so there's that. As well, um, and and that's that's the practical, uh, but also there's the theological too, right? So I mean, having the pulpit raised, you know, can you know give the indication that something really important is going on here, you know, and attention is drawn to it. Um, also, you've got the the you know, if you want to call it symbolism or the illustration that the word is higher than you. You know, kind of thing. It's not about the pastor; it's about the word that he preaches. You know, and then the uh, the architecture with reference to uh, the pulpit, the lectern. They may have come a little bit later, but certainly there was the altar there, from which was distributed Christ's body and blood. So, um, and we say we put Lutheran pastors on a pedestal. Um, let's see. Continuing on, yeah. Um, Generally in the West, there is theoretically or practically a separation between church and state. Now, that's still the claim by many, but sometimes the church seems to forget that its mission is thoroughly distinct from national interests. Do you agree? It should be. Yeah. But the government should be in support of that mission, too. Yeah. And we should we should allow the church to guide our decisions. Yeah. Our goals. Uh, yeah. Everything we do. Yeah. Well, there's a footnote here, um, you know, about Romans thirteen. Um, would you like me to read it? Yes. We must affirm the biblical teaching, Romans thirteen, one to seven, that government authority is established by God and is to punish wrongdoing protect its citizens, and maintain order and peace so that the church can carry out its mission. It's, uh, that's to Bill's point. To proclaim the gospel. In other words, the government is there, you know, set up by God, you know, to, to help the church do her job. Right? And the church, uh, in preaching the gospel and in, uh, in, uh, in, in speaking God's word, then also helps the government do her job, in a way. 
but they are distinct. The church may well wish to advertise its patriotism toward a benign government, but one may question whether it should go as far as to hold a special service specifically to celebrate a national holiday or display the nation's flag in the chancel. At the same time, we must protest the view of the state evident in the radical left wing of visible Christendom, where America and the capitalist West are instinctively condemned as purely evil agents of greed and exploitation. Of course, if civil authorities require people to do or say anything that is sinful and contrary to scripture, the Christian must refuse to comply. All right, so, um, yeah, we have to make distinctions here. One last paragraph uh, concerning uh, the oracles, the judgments against other nations before we move in. And we might also recall before I read this that when it comes to God's people, remember God first called judgment and warned Israel and then Judah, of course, of coming judgment because of her waywardness, right? Because of her sinfulness, because of her idolatries. where is it where it says, uh, I think it's in Peter, isn't it, that says judgment begins at the house of God? And if it begins with us first, what about the nations? Moreover, society exerts a constant pressure on the church to circumscribe or contradict theological truth drawn from the scriptures. And again, there's another footnote with some examples. For example, biblical teachings that are currently under attack in the West include the inspiration and authority of Scripture, what's that? <laughs> right? That salvation is through faith in Christ alone. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something. Is that still kind of a common notion today? Since Jesus is the only way to God the Father, that only qualified men are to be ordained to the pastoral office. I haven't done a study of this, but, but I would say there's only a handful. You could probably cut them on your fingers of denominations that do not yet ordain women. At least collectively, right? I mean, the Catholic Church does not, but um, um, but uh, the Episcopals, of course, they do. The Methodists, they do. Oh, Baptists don't, I don't think, right? At least, at least conservative, more than more conservative Baptists, right? Of course, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and Wisconsin Synod, and the CLC do not. Um, But, uh, yeah, so those are a few. Uh, That abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia constitute murder. The sanctity of marriage is a lifelong and exclusive union. And that homosexuality is intrinsically sinful. No doubt in the future, different biblical teachings will be the focus of society's assaults, just as other ones have been in the past. Continuing with the uh, introduction, to the extent that the church compromises with and conforms to heathen society, it becomes liable to the denouncements and the prophetic oracles against the Gentiles. We Christians may also grow weary of waiting for the final deliverance promised in these oracles. In all these ways, these prophecies serve as a clarion call for self-examination and repentance, as well as a reminder that from the sin that so easily entangles us, from Hebrews 12, and from all persecution by the enemies of Christ, we will, upon Christ's return, finally be free. All right, so, I mean, it's really easy, or it, it can be a temptation just to read the Old Testament 
especially hear about the prophets and say, you know, that was then, and we're entirely different today. Uh, in, in fact, many do claim that, right? Well, we're more enlightened than, than them, than they were in, in their day. We, we have a clearer understanding of how things truly are. I recently read something uh, that kind of is a is, is a couple of thousand years beyond, um, you know, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, but before our time, the middle of medieval ages. And uh, one comment was that in the medieval ages, people had it simpler, so they had so they had more time to think about things like death and life. I thought you were going to say taxes. No, not taxes. But, but you know what, what struck me is the, the comment that they have a, they had a simpler life so they could focus on different things. Um, the question then is, for me anyway, what things were they focused on and why? Because during the Middle Evil, medieval ages you had monasteries, right? right. And the, te- the, the, uh, the overarching teaching concerning monasteries, generally speaking, was this you enter this to get closer to God. To increase your piety, you know, to become more holy, um, and 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 they forsook everything, and that looks very uh, very pious to do that, but if you're doing that for your own salvation, uh, that's not what God gives to do. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. It comes from the grocery store, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said that recently, I think. But talking about the monasteries, I mean, you're talking about a small number compared to the overall population. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and I was, I was, when you said starting in the Middle Ages, I'm thinking about <coughs> Western Civ stuff, and the, and the people I refer to as serfs, you know, I mean, it was a daily battle for a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the two main concerns were for food and shelter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. 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 So I mean, we we have we we have uh, similar challenges in some ways, but very different challenges in other ways. And you know, the first statement goes goes kind of back to Ecclesiastes. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll think of the statement, you know, I, and I've heard this before, perhaps you have too. If I were back in, in Jesus' day, or if I were back in the Old Testament, yeah, that I, I would always be on the straight and narrow, right? I mean, I, if, if, if I were alive during Jesus' time, you know, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, he raises the dead, he heals the sick, he feeds 5,000 people. Who's not going to believe that? Yeah. Well, exactly. And then you know, my, my yeah, and 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 oftentimes my comment will now be, well, okay, so how 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 are you faring today? I mean, the question is not okay. If you were back then, the question is, 
where are you living now? You know, and when it comes to, for example, hearing God's word, not taking his word in vain, loving your spouse, um, loving your neighbor as yourself, um, having no other gods before him, how's that going for you? Um, because it's not about comparing to times past, but, but applying God's word to today. So in doing that, let's, uh, let's move to uh, chapters 25 to 32. Now, that's uh, a good chunk. We're not going to be able to, uh, to look at all of that, of course. But, um, but I, I did want to kind of touch on a few things. Now, um, I, I do want to point out, and I have this map up here. You probably can't see it really well except by area, unless you have one of the, the bigger handouts here. Um, but really, the, uh, the oracles, the judgments against these nations kind of start to the east or on the east, and then they go down and kind of work around uh, to Sidon. Um, I don't have a map either on this slide or on, a, on, a, on another slide today, but Assyria, if you can imagine, Assyria would be around here, and then Babylon would be roughly, I think, right around here. Um, in terms of the nations coming into power um, after Israel, of course, we have Assyria, who has already destroyed and exiled Israel, the northern nation. So the northern nation would be basically north of Jerusalem with a capital of Samaria. Um, and... Uh, you know, Syria already did that, so they're kind of in power already, but the Babylons are soon coming. The Babylons follow the Assyrians. All right? Um, so uh, just to kind of give an overview, Ammon, uh, his crime was rejoicing at the fall of God's people. Okay, so remember, uh, Ezekiel is, is prophesying at a time that uh, there is already the exile under the Babylonians, so the Babylonians really have already come. But the Babylonians, uh, we will find, will uh, attack Egypt. And then also uh, these, these other nations, too, they will do away with. So Ammon's uh, crime was rejoicing at the fall of God's people. Moab, again, mocking Judah. Edom, seeking revenge on Judah. And Egypt, living with pride. Uh, Philistia, trying to destroy Judah. Tyre, hoping to benefit from Jerusalem's fall, and then Sidon, treating Israelites with cruelty. Okay? Um, you know, so this, you know, the, the idea is, uh, I guess maybe to use this illustration, it's like you're, you know, a, a fellow human being is being attacked and you just kind of stand by and laugh. I think we'd also call that bullying too, wouldn't we? Even if it's not just the person that is bullying, but allowing it to happen is just as bad, right? Um, but we have that kind of going on with the nation. Remember, God uh, foretold that these things would take place on Judah, but that does not give the surrounding nations the right to mock, to ridicule uh, Judah and the like. Rather, what they ought to have done, which of course they didn't, but what they ought to have done is repent of their sinfulness. Right? Um, and then I, I mentioned Assyria. You might recall uh, that there was a time when Assyria did repent. Specifically Nineveh, right? Right. 
Um, and if I'm not mistaken, so you know, we, we've got Israel, this area here. I think uh, Nineveh is probably way up here, thousands of miles away. Yeah, it's, it's up in the northern part. Uh, actually, it's in Iraq now. Yeah. Yeah, it's right across the river from, where did the brains have that big battle for so long? Mosul? Mosul. Mosul. Yeah, it's right across the river from Mosul. Yeah. Which is the Euphrates. Yeah. All right. So th- this is going to give you s- at least a little bit of orientation in terms of where we are and, and you know, who Ezekiel is uh, as a nation, but we know that Nineveh they did repent at the preaching of Jonah. Afterwards, however, they kind of slid back and they did not, and they were actually destroyed by by, by the Babylon Babylonians too. Okay, so um, a, again, another map for orientation in terms of the kingdom of Ammon. Uh, that's kind of where we are with uh, chapter 25. And uh, you know, again, I've got some introduction here. Ezekiel pronounces seven. Prophecies against nations surrounding Israel. He begins by accusing Moab of believing that Judah is like other nations. And Moab is right here. When in truth they are called and blessed by God. So, you know, you could say they deserved what they got, but that again does not give uh, the right of Moab and other surrounding nations. Um, to say that they're like the other nations. Uh, Rather, again, repentance is the key here. Similarly, the Edomites joined forces with the Babylonians besieging Jerusalem. God reaches out to the Philistines that they may know he is God. And on these forthcoming slides, as you see in your notes, um, you know, there is that recurring phrase that they may know that I am the Lord. And what's amazing here, oftentimes we think of Uh, these words knowing that God is God by means of His grace and His mercy. But contrary to that, we see here in these places, uh, these uh, following chapters, 25 and, and, and following, that they will know that God is God, that He is the Lord, not by His mercy and grace, but by His judgment. Uh, we might think immediately of, of God's, how do we know God is merciful and kind? Ultimately, because of his judgment on his son for our sin, right? But it was by means of that judgment that Jesus Christ received that we have God's mercy and full and complete forgiveness. All right, um, I want to look at uh, just a, a few verses from chapter 25. And certainly, uh, I encourage you to to read these on your own as well. But specifically, uh, verses 6 through 7. Could we have one person read those two verses, please? Now why is why why are these people 
Why will these people be destroyed? Because they rejoiced in Israel's demise. Yeah. Does that seem like such a bad thing? I mean, we, we, you know, I, I'm thinking the answer, of course, is, well, yes. It is a bad thing um, that they do that. Deserving of, of judgment. But what do we make of those psalms, for example? Um, I'm, I'm moving to another book here, but they're called the imprecatory psalms with prayers against the enemies and so on and so forth. Um, you know, God is judging them. First, God judges his own people. You know, judgment begins at the house of God. God judges them, and yet he also judges the other nations that uh, mock and make fun of. Yeah. Yep. But I also want to think too that a lot of times that we look at the Psalms and we look at the person is is either I don't want to say sorrowful, but they're pleading for help against their enemies that are coming against them. Yeah. Especially David's Psalm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. In his younger years, I mean, he was fighting, and, and you know, so some of the Psalms Psalms there are more about protection and. Mm-hmm rather than, you know, rejoicing over somebody. Right, yeah. Is it is it wrong to pray for God's judgment to be met on evildoers? No. Say that again. Is it wrong to pray for God's judgment upon evildoers? No. You know, that I, I'm reminded, I, I forget exactly what psalm it is, but uh, I, I know there's at least one psalm, if not a few, that say, I hate those who hate you to God, right? So the psalmist is saying, I hate those who hate you, God. In other words, my enemy. Yeah. My enemy is my enemy. <laughs> yeah, your enemy is my enemy, yeah. right? But we do so as, as God's people. We pray for God's judgment, but for, you know, so for someone who has, you know, like the serial killer, we pray for his salvation, but we also pray that judgment be served, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, this kind of broadens the view, perhaps. But when we think of disciplining our children, why do we discipline our children? We want what's best for them, right? Um, we pray. You know, um, we we pray that uh, the Lord continue to lead them and guide them. We pray that the Lord continue to lead and guide us too. Uh, sometimes He does that by discipline too, doesn't He? You know, he might think, you know, things might become more difficult and challenging. But he does that out of his kindness because he wants to keep us a people for himself, right? Um, you, you've heard me probably say this before, but when do we notice ourselves praying more frequently or more intensely, more often? When things are going well or when things are not going so well? When things aren't going so well. Right, yeah. So, and, and God uses these uh, times, you know, to move us to repentance, too. You know, to turn our eyes from ourselves to see him. You know, and, and, and so when we hear of Ezekiel proclaiming judgment against the, 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 the people, or remember uh, last week when the elders came inquiring of the Lord, and God says through Ezekiel, will you inquire of me? You know, I've, I've done, uh, you know, 
dot, I, I've done this, this, and this, and yet you continue to refuse. I'm not going to listen to you. And that was not that was, that was not an excuse for them. Well, God's not going to listen to me. I'm just going to keep going my own way. Um, that 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 was a time then to more fervently repent, if it's possible. Right? You know, to continue seeking the Lord. And. Uh, um, Sticking with it, as it were. Okay, so uh, you know six to seven. We we looked at how about uh, verses eight to eleven? Uh, could someone read those verses, please? Thanks for working through those names. Um, these, these are these are not easy names. Notice notice uh, you know the indictment verse eight. The how, they they say the house of Judah is like all the other nations. They might look like all the other nations, but are they? No. And and that's that's the issue. Um, you know, again, you know, this is this is uh, you know to be a reminder. Of course, it's it's a judgment of Moab and Sarah, but it's also a reminder to God's people who are hearing this that we are God's people. We ought to live differently. We ought to be different and worship differently than the nations around us. Um, remember what they, what the people of Israel were doing, and the priests were allowing to happen in the temple. In Ezekiel's day, you know, even idol, idolatrous worship, uh, the sacrificing of even their own children, the shedding of blood, um, having idols pretty much everywhere, you know, to worship and sacrifice too. Um, and yeah, I mean, we could understand that these surrounding nations they see these things, and what are they what what are they going to say? They're just like us. But the fact of the matter is. They're not, at least uh, according to God's call and, uh, and according to, to God's purpose. So um, keep, this, uh, keep this map in mind. You have it in front of you. Hopefully that will be helpful. Uh, now I, I know I've got a lot of writing on this. This is concerning Tyre. So pretty much the entire, uh, these couple chapters, these few chapters are all proclamations against Tyre, lamentations about Tyre and so on and so forth. The Lord speaks against Phoenicia and its principal city, Tyre. Now, um, let's see. I'm guessing Tyre and Sidon um, is on there. The people who pride themselves on criticizing and persecuting God's people will suffer his wrath here or in the grave. Yet there is hope and beauty for the repentant. God requests that nations sing a funeral lament over the destruction of Tyre uh, because of its place pretty much politically 
its place also with reference to uh, the trade routes and its connections with other nations as well. But they are to see this also in this lament. They are to see you know, Tyre as kind of an example of what God himself does and will do to, uh, in order, or as he judges nations. The sins of self-pride brought unrighteousness. God also speaks against Sidon. He will make his glory known in judgment, but finally in mercy. He directs Israel back to his covenant with their namesake, Jacob, Israel. All right, so again, you see, uh, you know, the, the phrases, I am the Lord, or actually, so that they may know that I am the Lord. I want to draw your attention to uh, chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. And I think this one we're going to have to read, uh, we're, we're going to have to have more readers, probably. Uh, I think the language is a little bit easier. Um, can we start with Myra, with verse 1, and then um, each one take one to verse 10. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the, of the sea, yet you are but a man and no God. Through you, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that you can be hidden that, that can be hidden from you. Verse four. So what was what was the Prince of Tyre's issue, we might say? Pride. Pride, Pride yeah. Pride is, is, is calling himself a god. Yeah. Yeah. And and this actually, you know, again, someone had commented, you know, from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We've seen things like this elsewhere too, haven't we? Um, you know, more more immediately, I, I guess in uh, you know during the Roman Empire, what what was uh, what was uh, the emperor seen as? He was a god. Yeah, a god. 
right? What's that? That was thanks to Julius Caesar. He was the one who started that. Yeah. That wasn't the way it was originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then what about, uh, I don't know, there might be someone who knows something about Egyptian religion. Yeah. You know, from way back when. The pharaoh was considered the god. Mm-hmm. And even more recently, you have the Japanese who thought the emperor was a mm-hmm. god. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is not new. Uh, There's also another example that comes up a little bit later um, with, uh, so here we're we're talking about the Prince of Tyre, uh, but there's also uh, during the exile, and I think just a little bit, uh, maybe overlapping Ezekiel, maybe a little bit uh, is, is the prophet Daniel. And recall that uh, there was a, a king by the name of uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, that had a dream that Daniel, or that God interpreted through Daniel. And that that uh, account is given in Daniel four. If we want to, if we want to take a look at it, it's just uh, one book after Ezekiel. But I, I think it's fairly profound that we have this account in Nebuchadnezzar or in Daniel, concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And, um, you know, I've been thinking of this lately, you know, for for a number of reasons, but it's really intriguing to me to consider the fact that we have Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might remember the fiery furnace. And then Daniel and these events. um, Remember, it was under the Babylonians and then under... uh, you know, Darius, King Darius of Persia, um, that uh, allowed the Jewish people, the Judaites, to go back to Jerusalem. And uh, what, what I'm kind of wondering, I'm thinking out loud, if like these accounts in um, in Daniel about the fiery furnace, and then also the uh, the Daniel in the lion's den, if that may have influenced the king to such a degree that maybe that's one of the reasons why he was led to let the people go back to Jerusalem. Just a thought, but I, I think it, it's very telling when we when we get these decrees given by the kings concerning God. And and we certainly find one here in, in Daniel. Um, after after, for example, after the fiery furnace account, we have the king, you know, speaking highly of God. And after Daniel in the lion's den account, then we have the king also decreeing that, hey, this is God. You know, um, even though, you know, we, we might surmise that they had a pantheon of gods. But this God who delivered Daniel uh, and then also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, he's the God of gods. He's above all of them, you know, kind of thing. But in, in verses 29 to 37 of chapter 4, you know, we have, uh, we have the accounts that, uh, and I'll just read it for the sake of time. We kind of have to wrap up. But all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. Daniel interpreted the dream. But the king did not repent. God, uh, through Daniel, told the king to repent, but he didn't. At the end of 12 months, so we're talking about a year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident residence for the glory of my majesty. There was also an accountant in the Acts of the Apostles, I think, too. Was, was it Herod? Yeah, I think it was one of the Herods who did not um, silence a crowd who was saying the voice of a God and not of a man. And an angel of the Lord struck King Herod. And then worms. Kind of a, a grotesque view, but um, he died. Um, while the words, in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And then we hear too at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Notice what he does in verse 37. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is writing, and he says, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So the Lord humbles Tyre, and he humbles the enemies of God, the enemies of his people. Um, and what's, what's amazing about Nebuchadnezzar too, that dream that he had, these very things he dreamed would happen. And that's why Daniel then said, turn from your ways, repent. Acknowledge that God is the one having given you this. But what's, uh, what's notable too, um, uh, go back to Ezekiel 28, we'll conclude with this. But I want you to, um, as, as I'm reading uh, verses 25 and 26, and as you're reading it, note who does the gathering and who executes the judgment. Thus says the Lord God, verse, uh, verse 25 of chapter 28 of Ezekiel, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgment upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Um, who is gathering the house of Israel? Yeah, and it's an ob- I mean, the, the question has an obvious answer, right? Um, it's God who's doing these things, uh, not the people. And you know, who's who's uh, dishing out judgment on the enemies of God's people? Not God's people, God, right? Um, kind of an important thing to to remember. There's more that could be said, you know, most, most certainly. Um, 
Maybe I'll just, uh, let's see. Just draw your attention. We don't have time to really talk about it, but uh, in verses uh, 17 to 21 of chapter 29, we have reference to Babylon. And it, it's, it's most interesting here, and I, I, maybe we could talk about this next, next time a little bit. We kind of introduced this, this uh, idea last week that God punishes nations by nations. So we have Assyria, who was kind of God's sword, and then Babylon judged, you know, or God judged Assyria by the means of Babylon. And uh, you know we have we have these uh, these nations which God uses to judge other nations and calling them uh, to repentance and meeting out His punishment uh, for their waywardness, their idolatries, their rejection of Him as well. So we have to conclude now. Um, so uh, we'll close with prayer, and uh, we'll see you we'll see you in just a moment again. Heavenly Father, move us to repentance according to your word. Help us to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and to follow him wherever he leads. For as a good shepherd, he leads us continually to the green pastures of the heavenly land. Strengthen our faith and edify us by your word and by the very body and blood of Christ by which we live. In Jesus' name. Amen.